splitting. Okay. Anyways, uh, I'm here with Matt Vansel, the director of The Gamers and The Gamers 2 Dorkness Rising. Uh, some of the, probably the most entertaining uh, fantasy gaming movies released to date. Uh, so, why don't we get started with uh, uh, you describing your background both as a gamer and as a director? Uh, someone. Okay, who- well... Well, uh, gaming background, really, I didn't start until uh, middle school. My grandparents, my very conservative grandparents, actually bought me a copy of the PHB 2nd Edition when I was 12, which was a surprise. I hadn't encountered D&D before that. I was just more of a uh, sort of a fantasy nerd in what I was reading, you know, a lot of mythology, a lot of, a lot of fairy tales and stuff. And so when they handed me that, I thought, what the heck is this? And then the idea, wait a minute, I can be one of these people? One of these characters was kind of... Uh, Phenomenal, and I devoured that thing, and was stuck with the bug ever since. I've been I've been gaming. Uh, as for directing, actually, um, the first thing I directed was the Gamers, but that was after Dead Gentleman Productions, which is the company that's that's done all all of our films. I had done a couple of very low budget uh, features. These were the Demon Hunters movies, uh, which were recently actually turned into a role playing game by Margaret Weiss Productions, which is the company that did the Serenity and Battlestar Galactica games, which we're pretty pleased about. Um, anyway. Uh, ben Dobbins directed the first one. This is a time when we were all, most of us, except for Ben, were a bunch of college juniors and whatnot. We had no idea what was involved with filmmaking. Ben was the only filmmaker at a school with no film program. Uh, and he said, here, let me help, and, and essentially took over and watched him direct and learned a lot from that. And then when we did the sequel a year later, uh, Don Early, who is, is the current head of the company um, and who produced um, Darkness Rising, directed uh, Dead Camper Lake. And after that, I figured, okay, I've learned enough watching these guys i think i can try it on my own and yeah that was the gamers all right all right so why don't you tell us a little bit about how um the gamers came about in terms of you i mean you know you said you were watching these guys uh make their own movies and you're helping out but why do a movie about some guys playing D D? essentially i mean it doesn't really say D D in the first gamers but you know we all know what it is so right yeah no, the, the idea came from just personal experiences as a gamer, both as, a, as a, a player and a GM, because I think the situation is inherently funny. I mean, as much fun as it, as it is and as, as great an exercise in the imagination as it is, you are pretending to be you know, warriors and elves and dwarves um, in, a, in a fantasy world, and it just lends itself to humor very well. I mean, you've all been sitting around, and half the fun of the gaming is, is not actually gaming, but it's the joking around that goes about. Uh, one of the things that producers have described gaming is, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. It's a half hour of fun packed into five hours of gameplay. Um, <laughs> you know, so it just seemed like a natural setup. And then the humor, like a lot of, of, um, of uh, game-based humor that exists, not just in RPG stuff, but a lot of the video game stuff, is just what happens if you apply the rules of the game to real life, or you add some sort of realism into what actually is happening, and the humor comes out of that. You know, the, the botched roles, the arguments, the um, botched roles specifically as in missing something that is painfully obvious right there in front of you, uh, and you should be able to, by all accounts, see, but be, the dice dictate otherwise. So it just, and, it, and it turned into something that was um, beyond any type of expectation. I mean, the budget on, on the gamers was, a, was about $500. 
and that was just something paid out of pocket for going along. There was never a plan to release it. There was never a plan to sell it. It was more of a, this is a fun thing that I did during college that I'll take out every now and then and show people. And it was in the middle of the filming of the fantasy world, because we did the real world first. Uh, I specifically remember we were in Aberdeen, Washington, on the shore of the bank of the Wainuchi River, where we filmed the whole river sequence. Um, and we were hoisting the uh, wizard dummy up to the train trestle to throw him over so he would splat down in the shot. And we're laughing our butts off. And, and I remember turning to a friend and saying, you know, I think every gamer is going to want a copy of this. And that's turned out not necessarily to be true, but to be uh, half or so. Uh, it, it exploded at, at the conventions and, and uh, specifically Gen Con over the last five years. Uh, we added, we released it on DVD in 2003. It sold thousands of copies and led directly to the sequel, uh, us able to fund the sequel. Wow. Um, so what Ooh. kind of uh, lessons did you learn while producing the first game or while directing the first game? <laughs> uh, first, the, uh, the, the main lesson I've learned... Um, Actually, is one that I learned later on was uh, it is impossible to do this. Like if if I, I just last year I graduated from uh, film school. The second gamers movie got me into the AFI um, down here in Hollywood, where I'm I'm living now. And if if you told me now that I would make a uh, a 48 minute movie for five hundred dollars that would include shooting over nine months, I, I would have laughed at you. I mean, it's it's impossible to do that. <laughs> or at least Hollywood would, would tell you, and for a movie with, with no word of mouth and no marketing to, to do well. I mean, what I took from it was a lot of the stuff that I guess is second nature to more experienced filmmakers. Uh, you definitely need better lighting, and sound is critical. I mean, most of the time we were using just the, 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 the microphone on the camera, and we did have a, a, a boom mic with us, but the connection was bad, so it caused more static than... than uh, been good sound, so we, we, we couldn't use it most of the time, and we ended up looping uh, most of the movie. Lighting, again, is critical. We were shooting in places uh, where we had no electricity, no power, and we had to jury-rig as much light as we as we tried. Like the, the campfire sequence, we um, we shot in this coastal forest, and when, it, when the sun went down, it got dark. I mean, it was inky black, sort of spooky woods at night dark and we figured well we we had the fire we have a few lanterns and our poor lighting guy was trying to bounce as much light off of pieces of poster board uh towards <laughs> towards what was happening we had one one crew guy whose whose sole job was let's say action and he'd run up with a bunch of paper logs he'd roll drop them on the fire and the fire would get really bright for about 15 seconds and we'd shoot everything in that 15 seconds and the fire would die and we'd say cut and kind of repeat the process so <laughs> It wow. was it was it was kind of nuts. Yeah. Yeah. No. I I, I hear you. The uh, uh, the guerrilla movie making style uh, certainly requires a lot of improvisation. You know, kind of like running a game without a, a scenario in mind, just uh, running by the seat of your pants. I guess. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's it was nuts. It was crazy. And it was impossible. I, I could never do it again. And <laughs> you know, years later, we're shooting uh, the sequel with a semi-professional cast and crew, and we have a full crew where you do have dedicated departments to lighting and electrics, uh, electricity and, and, uh, and sound and production design. So, you know, doing, doing, the, uh, doing the sequel, which wasn't the, the next thing I directed, but, you know, I haven't 
it, it was one one it was only a few things um, between gamers and, and Darkness Rising that you know it's a feature film we're shooting on high definition we have this in many places many much more experienced than than myself uh, cast and crew specifically our director of photography so and it turned out actually it just the magic blend of experience and I guess raw guerrilla talent uh, and improvisation um, that helped us finish Darkness Rising. So once you had the gamers, you know, done on DVD, and by this point you had already realized that you want to release it to the uh, public. How mm-hmm. did you get a? Uh, how did you do that? I mean, how did you, you know, get from uh, the you know the finished film in the can to conventions, mm-hmm. everything else? Well, it it it. Um, there's been this really bizarre serendipity factor that every one of the Dead Gentleman films has had. It's something where at every point, uh, for for every film that we've done, there's a point where the movie should have either died, in, or been knocked down and never gotten up again. Should not have been able to finish, and something remarkable, uh, a coincidence of a chance meeting or opportunity, shows up and allows us to save the film. And it's one of those things where you, you kind of rely on it, but the moment you count on it, it will fail you. Mm-hmm. Right? So that how we edited the film, because we didn't have an editing system at the time. It just so happened I was looking for work as a bartender in 2002, applying all over Tacoma. Nobody was interested. And I was walking out of one, and I ran into an old high school teacher who was one of the guys starting up this new magnet school that shared the same block. And they were looking for people to teach, in the, uh, teach digital filmmaking, which we'd done. And we got hired for that job and were able to use their brand new G4s, again, this is 2002, to edit the movie on. And at the same time, research uh, these festivals and send out copies. And so Ben Dobbins, who, is, who edited the movie and, and uh, was one of the composers on it, uh, and he and I were working, working at, at the school, sent... Uh, it out to several festivals, and it was weird which ones picked it up. There was, I think, it was uh, Archon, which is a comic convention, I think, in Iowa. Um, probably, I'm probably wrong because I have a terrible memory. But the Hawaii International Film Festival, for some reason, picked us up and said it was great, and, and people loved it, and we had enough of a demand for a few VHS cassettes, and we sold about a hundred of those. But got a lot of replies of, no, no, we want a DVD. So we authored this DVD, and then went to Gen Con, and it exploded there. It was this Gen Con 2003, first time we went, where it kind of occurred to us, you know what, we should be making a sequel. Or at least the, the other guys, the other dead gentleman told that, said that to me, and I said, well, it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. How are we going to make a sequel? We killed everyone in the movie. And you can't really make a sequel when everyone is dead. Uh, oh, by the way, spoiler alert. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, essentially, we, um, the gamers was selling so well for us, because again, it cost nothing to make, and even duplicating it ourselves, we were making a, uh, enough money to get a, an office that that gentleman had for had for a while and start looking for investors and specifically we, we brought some more people on board and we uh, found investors who were interested in investing in a feature length gamers film based on how well the first one had sold and again we're not talking about a, a Hollywood budget even a Hollywood micro budget I mean it was it was very very low at the low end of low budgets but we did raise enough to again hire that semi professional crew. It took a while, of course, to to get going. I mean, I, I wrote the first draft of the script in in late 2003, and we spent 2004 in pre-production. Uh, we were going to shoot in the summer, but that got um, canceled uh, due to just we we we, we were weren't prepared at the time. Ultimately, we wound up shooting in um, 
January, from January to May and into early June of 2005. In the middle of that, I found out I had been accepted to film school. So we wrapped in June 2005. July 2005, we moved down to Los Angeles. September 2005, began school. Uh, and the movie was done. We had a, a, to show in 2006. We premiered at Gen Con. And then it was just, it was, well, we premiered a cut at Gen Con, definitely not the final version. Uh, and it took uh, two years later, we, we found a distributor. And that was the ultimate goal for the project, because if, if we wound up self-distributing this one, uh, we'd never make another one, because we wouldn't really, it'd, be, it'd take too long to pay the investors back. From the beginning, we were looking for a distributor, which um, finding a distributor for film is like finding a publisher for your book. You know, someone to sell it for you, right? And uh, one of the one of the great partnerships that we made, that we still have right now, uh, are John Frank Rosenblum and Cindy Rice from Epic Level Entertainment, who like to specialize in in genre stuff and are big gaming fans. And they actually saw that they uh, found us at that first Gen Con and said, you know, we should work together. And they co-produced the second one and found us our, our distributor, Anthem Pictures, uh, out in Agora Hills. And so now, um, yes, Darkness Rising is available. It's on DVD, it's on Amazon, and, and on Netflix. You may be able to find it in Target. Uh, so it took us years, but it was the success we were after. And uh, we're in talks now to do another one. Oh, wow. Or more, or more yeah. We may be able to do a whole slew of these things. Right, a whole franchise. I mean, it does. Exactly. It certainly the format is uh, open enough for that kind of uh, uh, treatment. You know, every every gamers have another uh, group of, uh, explore another trope of fantasy and other couple of themes of it. Um, exactly, and not just fantasy, but other types of games. Because we've done the RPG, uh, there are a lot of other games and hobbies out there that we could uh, break into and defile. <laughs> of course. Um, now, getting back to the the, the first gamers, um, one of the things I, I I have the first DVD, and one of the things I really enjoyed was for a forty eight minute movie, the uh, extras on the DVD really are uh, outstanding. I would have to say. I mean, they might in some ways they exceed the original movie because you know you have everything, including Latin subtitles, which I yes. think is a first <laughs> in uh, 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 movie production. Um, that, that's that's uh, Don Early right there, uh, getting a chance to use one of his majors from college, his his Latin, three years of Latin not going to waste. Um, yeah, no, we decided that we were going to fill the DVD. And well, what, one of the things that, that the folks at Epic Level told us why the gamers, the first one, could never find distribution um, was, one, it's too short, and two, the production values are too low, which, again, we had $500 to work with. We weren't We weren't aiming. For that. So we decided when making the DVD, we'd try to fill it with as much stuff as we can. So, of course, there's outtakes, there's a making of. Uh, one thing that a lot of people like are the commentaries. We have four commentary tracks. Um, I do one with the editor, and uh, the cast does one, which is a lot of fun. Then there's a joke track where Chris Odie and Ben Dobbins essentially did a running psychological commentary and essentially bullshit the entire movie as to how it is deeply... Uh, evocative of the archetypal uh, Jungian union of yeah, Jungian uh, the types of people and their growth uh, through and self-discovery and whatnot through the characters, it, which is I can't believe they kept it up for for that long. 
And the coolest one, um, which is uh, Nathan Rice did sort of an interview talk with Monty Cook, one of the designers of Third Edition, um, Dungeons and Dragons, that was on on the DVD. Actually, Monty is is responsible for a lot of our success. Uh, We did a screening of this at at, at Wizards of the Coast one year, and then he wrote on it, he wrote about it in his line of sight uh, um, column on his on his blog, and uh, our sales just spiked after that and never looked back. So we put him in the sequel. He's actually we we have we have a number of gaming celebrities in the sequel. We've got Ed Stark and uh, and Sean Reynolds and Monty Cook and Monty Cook. I think I mean everyone did really well, but I say Monty was the one who who uh, acted the part the best. Right. He's the yeah he's the cleric at the end, and he insisted that. Um, he be noted as Bill the Cleric in, in the credits. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, all those game designers are obviously game masters, and there's a bit of acting in uh, uh, running a game, obviously. So. Oh, just a bit, yeah. Just a bit. So uh, why don't we talk more uh, about the production of The Gamers 2, specifically, um, you know, this is a feature-length movie, a whole, I think, it's, mm-hmm. what is it, 104 minutes? Uh, it's, like uh, yeah, about that. It's an hour 45. Yeah. And... Obviously, there's more than just the game. There's actually, you know, a plot of the characters outside the game. And uh, so, how did you write? How long did it take you to write uh, the gamers two? And how many drafts did it go through? Uh, tell us a little bit about your process. Oh man, well the the, um, the initial draft took a couple weeks, but the rewrite took over a year. I mean, you're never really done with the script. The uh, it's said that the person who does the final script is actually the editor. You know, there are parts of it that I still would be rewriting if I could. Um, that I was no, not happy with, or that I think it could be better. You know, jokes missed, uh, opportunities not as as clearly uh, done as I intended. Um, but as for the process, it was it was a matter of try. It, we had to go into the real world, into the actual players' lives, because the original structure that we used for the gamers wouldn't sustain for an hour and a half. I mean, the first gamers I think of is it's really more of a sketch comedy setup. Uh, you know, it's it's set up joke, set up joke, set up joke, with no real um, arc for any of the characters. I mean, there's a, there's there's only the loosest of plots. It's essentially a gaming joke delivery system, right? right? Never bothered to explore who the players were because the characters were more interesting. Well, we couldn't sustain that, uh, especially enough for trying to sell this out of market to a non-gaming audience, which Dorkness did. Uh, so tried to get more into who are the players themselves, who are the players when they're not playing. And very easily they started defining the different archetypes that you come in. You have your story player, who's our dungeon master, uh, Lodge, who's, who's actually, like many game masters and whatnot, is a guy who writes his own fiction, is a struggling writer that way, and is looking for a creative outlet in that, and is trying to finish the campaign specifically so that he can write it as a module. Uh, we have the power gamer, Cash who sees it more as a uh, challenge to beat than to play than to enjoy. Um, So there's friction, of course, between the story-driven GM and the rules-driven player there. There's also, I mean, uh, other other types of uh, characters we examine. I really enjoy the trickster gamer, you know, the guy who's there more for his own fun than anything else. And, of course, the girl, who's the neophyte this time, and and we're able to introduce gaming, the concepts, and and, uh, whatnot to non-gaming audience through her eyes. So right there you have a whole bunch of different um, personal journeys that people are going through, the girl learning the game, the, uh, the dungeon master specifically learning to trust his players and earning their trust in return, uh, the gaming group going from a more rules-driven, uh, min-maxing group of power gamers to a group of story gamers by the end. So 
and I mean, we're, we're we're pleased with how that how that turned out. I think we could have done more um, with it, but uh, of course that's just you know twenty twenty hindsight. The cast was phenomenal. Uh, they just were magic together. And one one thing that's amazing is um, and not many people know this. Carol Roscoe, who plays Joanna is an actress who came in at the last minute. We had to replace our lead with less than a week to go before we started shooting. And, um, I mean, we were, we were, we were freaked out. We weren't going to be able to find someone because she needed to know stage com. She needed to know combat. She and also needed to be able to act. Well, it turns out Carol is a gal who not only knows combat, but teaches stage combat. <laughs> and as for acting, I mean, she's, if you've seen the movie, she's phenomenal. Uh, yeah, less than a week to go, week of prep, prep time. And, and she just came in and did a bang-up job. Very professional. Um, oh, yes. Was she a gamer before uh, the movie started, or are any of the actors non-gamers before they uh, took up the roles? I think the only one who maybe was a non-gamer to begin with was Scott Brown, who played the Bard, but he is now a thorough gamer. We gamerized him. Uh, Carol had game. She, she had DM'd a bit in high school, but hadn't for a while. But she was, you know, enough of a background to... Uh, uh, to play what what was there in front of them. Uh, so when you're writing this, do, do you, uh, every writer has their own, you know, process for doing this. Do you write on your own? Did you have a partner? Did you, uh, what kind of input did you get from other people when you're going in between drafts or was it all just you? Um, well, it's never all just, uh, production's never all just the writer, just like it's never all, all the director. It's, it's film by nature is, is collaborative and, uh, I can go into a whole diatribe on that. I won't. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do I do the drafts on my own, and then I, I uh, when I have something that I think is is solid, I take it and I disseminate it with with home uh, with. And, you know, we have read throughs and whatnot, give suggestions. Or nothing is better for a rewrite than hearing it spoken out loud. Uh, you know, because something in your head you think is a great line or, or works can be very clunky when it comes off the tongue or something you think was, was just a throwaway line can, can find hit, uh, laughter if an actor reads it with, with uh, hidden meaning and subtext to it that you, you yourself didn't know was there. So um, I, I write it, then we collaborate, I go back, I change it, bring it back, we collaborate. That's been my process in the past. I've changed that, never find that a bit since, since film school because I went for, for screenwriting, but it's still basically the same. All right. Um, so once you finally, you know, after the, or I, did you start pre-production during the writing, or did you have the script totally locked in before you? Uh... Oh, we did not have the script totally locked in. In fact, there were uh, <laughs> we had um, one of the major rewrites was done after we were supposed to shoot and didn't in two thousand four, and that was originally there was a sixth player. Uh, the guy who was playing the paladin was not the DM, and uh, it just hit, 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 hit the epiphany at that moment. You know, well, why, why do we have? I have these two weak characters, the DM and the paladin player. Why not just combine them? And then, oh, all of a sudden, now the DM has an NPC that he's controlling. He's in the game world itself. Seemed like a natural fit, but I guess wasn't able to see that until had the script. You know, for a few months of uh, to digest everything. And then when we were shooting, we, um, we, we shot the real-world sequence first, and then the fantasy sequences a few months later. But after we shot the real-world sequences, there were also still a few script changes that uh, were made that had to be very specifically and creatively written so they would fit what was already shot, because <laughs> we've got to cut all this stuff together. Um, and then there was stuff that just happened the days of. Like, originally, um, 
one of the hardest locations, that, two, two locations that were impossible for us to find. One was the final battle sequence with Mort Chemnon, where they're fighting near the dragon skull, and uh, they, they knock the Mask of Death off of him. We were trying to find a room that would be underground in a stony place, because it's at the very end of the dungeon, and we just could not find a place with enough room. And then the production designer finally just, you know, got us to, listen, look, we're already here shooting at these, at these ruins, at these old uh, pre-World War I forts. Why don't we just use one of the old gun emplacements up top? You know, just shoot it from, from a couple of angles so you never see the area that's open. And we had to come back the next week to do that, but we did. Um, another one was uh, the inn. We searched, that was the bane of our existence. We searched for a year and a half for something that would work as a medieval tavern. And either it was perfect, but the guy wanted to charge us something like $4,000 a day, or, uh, yeah, or it fell through at the last moment, or there was just too much that was modern in it, like, you know, we got to cover the ice machine and the basketball hoop. Um, so we never could find it, and then the production designer finally said, it was amazing production designer, Matt DeMille, who actually is now going to AFI, because uh, his reel got him in for this project and others, uh, built the inn in his garage, in a two-car garage, uh, covered everything, gave us 360 degrees of shootable facade, and the inn is one of the, I think, probably the best location in the uh, in the movie. It, you don't think that's a garage? It's no, it's amazing. No, I never would have guessed. Not that. at all. Uh, no, and and then uh, so and just and, and another, another thing as for changing uh, at the last minute, we kept uh, not being able to cast Drazul, the demon, who they fight uh, in the middle of the zombie town. And either we just uh, the actor's schedules didn't line up, or we got a, or we couldn't find a costume, or we found a guy with an amazing costume, handcrafted, uh, spiky looking, like some sort of uh, alien predator hybrid, but he couldn't make the shoot dates. And then hit on the notion of, well, wait a minute, we're, we're going with the idea of a big scary male demon. Why don't we just go with the idea of a demon child? That's pretty spooky, or you know, the kid being scary, and then we don't have to worry about a big freaking costume. And, just like that, we, we pulled Talis Moore, who was the son of our uh, our acting coach, Corey Moore, who actually brought us Carol uh, at the last minute. And like that, we have a very memorable movie villain who wasn't going to be that a week earlier. So, yes, there's a lot of uh, a lot of improvisation and changes that goes on. I mean, the rewriting literally keeps going. And then on set, of course, if an actor, an act, actors a lot of times will, will blurt out a line that just feels right. Nathan Rice is the king at this. Most of the fu- some of the funniest lines in, in the script came from him from development or on the spot. Um, he who stumbles around in darkness with a stick is blind, but he who sticks out in darkness is fluorescent. Is one of his. Uh, and he played. Which role did he play in the movie? He plays um, Sir Osric, the paladin and the dungeon master at lodge. Oh right, 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 and all right. Um, so getting back to the the, the comedy, uh, now you've worked on at least you know both movies with a very heavy emphasis on gaming comedy, which is a very sort of unique niche of humor. There tends to be the two schools of joke. The one you mentioned, which is applying real world logic to uh, the game world, or vice versa, and then the other one is the nerds in the parent basement joke, uh, mm-hmm. which yeah. is, so. What have you learned about uh, gaming comedy after you know writing and making these two movies and hearing back you know feedback from uh, people around the world and what have you learned? What I've learned mainly is if you're going to poke fun at something, you have to be you have to respect it. You know, um, 
there are other gaming movies out there, and a lot of them have gone the route of the losers in the parents' basement. And those aren't... I don't, they're not doing as well, specifically because I think you're, they're alienating the people they're aimed at. Um, number one thing is, of course, respect the material and respect the people. Yes, we're, 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 we're geeky and we're, we're off-center and we're not necessarily uh, your average people, but that's, there's a lot to celebrate about being a gamer. Um, the easy thing to do is to mock, you know. Um, and I think that by not going with the stereotypical, you know, basement-dwelling uh, losers, <laughs> if that's the, the stereotype, um, it, it comes across as more genuine. You know, they're people who are enjoying this game. They're a little quirky, yes, but they're not social outcasts or the way that, that uh, it's often portrayed. Because so often, so often gaming in the media is portrayed as something... Uh, that should be made fun of, you know, or something you should be ashamed of. Well, it's not. It's, 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 as, it's a more sociable activity than video gaming. It involves your ma- imagination more. And uh, now that we're entering into, I mean, you've got second and third generation uh, gaming families now. So it's a, and from that understanding, it's a great uh, family activity. So number one thing I've learned is respect the material and the people you're marketing to. <laughs> Easiest way to lose your audience is to insult them, which I've accidentally done. Oh really? Oh really? Oh yes. Oh, care to uh, elaborate on that? Or not really, but I will. <laughs> um, one of the first places that, that uh, Darkness Rising played was the International Science Fiction and uh, sorry, the International Horror and Science Fiction Film Festival in Phoenix, and uh, we went to that, and we had a pretty sizable screening, and and, and John Frank was there with me, and uh, said, "So, how many people here have seen the Gamers, the original?" And a few of them clapped. And I said, "Oh, great! You know, it's." This is a sequel to it. Uh, you don't need to have seen the sequel to understand it. Just remember that the people who have seen the original are smarter than you. Ha ha. And of course, there was dead silence, and and I went ah ha ha. And uh, John Frank said, "Start the film." So, yeah. Yes. It did not do well at the uh, festival. Then? It did. It did well, but it was you know cover the gaff of uh, John Frank has since then. Right. he can told me, you know, Matt, do not insult the audience. All right. So, uh, how ha- um, one of the interesting things about the marketing of uh, the Gamers 2 has been the uh, Goodman Games scenario, uh, I believe, that has come out of it. Uh, could you tell us more about that? The what that's come out of it, sir? Uh, well, I, I remember on your website that the sen- there's a written scenario for the movie. Oh, yes. No, we, um, we had made a, a lot of connections in the gaming industry because... Well, frankly, we um, were the only people in the industry making these making movies. So, the the gaming fans elevated us to celebrity status, which is funny because now we're sharing because we're sharing elbow room with actual celebrities, you know, like Margaret Weiss, Tracy Hickman, New York Times best-selling authors, Mike Stackpole, and Larry Elmore, and folks, and they're treating us like like equals and friends. And some of our best friends are are these gaming celebs. So. We uh, had all these connections to people, many of them with their own companies. And so for Darkness Rising, one thing that uh, Ben Dobbins did was uh, look for product placement so that we could make it more accurate. Like, like you said, you know, with the first gamers, we didn't have any licenses for anything, so we uh, wrote it as a generic system that was D&D without being d and when we covered up all of the, all the artwork and anything recognizable. Uh, but for the sequel, we... Wizards allowed us to use Dungeons and Dragons 3.5 was the game they were playing. Uh, plus, uh, Goodman Games wrote a module based on 
the campaign in the movie that you can that you can get. Uh, Magnificent Egos did miniatures of the of the cast. Um, uh, Chris Clark's a good friend of ours. Actually, said it's the first time they've ever done a transvestite character. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Dark Fury's publishing did the map, uh, a floor plan map of the inn, where they had uh, the ninja battle, and um, uh, Clockworks pro- uh, gave production uh, production design. Dragon Fury's um, the fiery dragon we used. Um, I think Dragon Fury's. I think I combined two. Or Dragon uh, <laughs> Dragon Fury's. Come on. Reboot brain. File not found. Uh, Fiery Dragon provided dungeon tiles that the game master, master uses when they're, when they're going into um, the dungeon for the second time. So, yeah, all the stuff that they're using is the Crystal Cast gave us the dice to use. All that is, is Crystal Cast dice. So the uh, gaming community just came out in massive support uh, for the film. Wow. Uh, so how else uh, did you have any other uh, particular marketing uh, techniques that you tried out, or uh, how did distribution go? I mean, you mentioned it took you two years to get uh, distributed. Right. Well, it wasn't, two years, necess- it wasn't necessarily two years to find distribution. It was two years of, we have a cut of, of uh, uh, mind-bendingly awful post-production uh, that, that just took far too long and cost far too much. The distribution actually happened rather quickly once we had a, a final finished version. Uh, the marketing that was was specifically trying to, well, not trying, but convincing uh, a distributor that, look, yes, it's a niche film. It does target the adventure hobby industry, but you do not have to be a gamer to enjoy the movie. And that's been the, um, luckily, that's been proven the case. I mean, a lot of the reviews we get are, I show this to my non-gaming girlfriend, I show this to my non-gaming family, and they get it and they love it and they enjoy it as much as the rest of us. Um, So that was really the film uh, selling itself, um, I think, and showing it to the, the folks who picked it up, Anthem Pictures. Uh, it's unlike anything they've had before. It's doing unlike any other film they've had before. It's doing really well. They sold out of their initial run in about three weeks. So we've got a great relationship with them that we're looking forward to continuing. Wow. And, hey, now that uh, you know they signed uh, the distribution deal, they're the ones doing the selling, so the marketing ultimately is up to them. <laughs> Which is nice. We can just focus on the on the, making the movies. Right. right. Uh, so, what was so uh, mind-bendingly awful uh, for your post-production? Was well, it- I'll tell you. Yeah. Uh, we um, we uh, had the option to shoot this movie on high def, which we took. It was great. At, at um, in the last minute, in the last month or so, I should say, before we shot, uh, producer Jeff Madsen came in and offered us offered to let us use his camera, which is one of the cameras that had been used on uh, Episode 2 in Star Wars. So it was a high-def camera. However, it was a first-generation camera. It wasn't a true high-def. It was a standard-def camera that had been up-converted to be able to produce high-definition. So we shot everything high-def. problem was you couldn't get high-def if you used the tapes on a normal deck. You had to get one of these specific uh, transitionary decks that was for that specific camera. And there's something like eight in the world, and only two of them in Los Angeles. So it was that the demand to use that deck was phenomenally was phenomenal and busy. It was busy all the time. The insurance for it cost an f ton. Uh, and when we could get it, I mean, it wasn't something that you could just run back to when you needed to grab some more footage. Uh, it was just an amazing headache. We had problems with with sound uh, in in. Uh, post-production some of the some of the effects started uh, creating artifacts and uh, 
that would be there in, in, in one burn of the film but would not be there in another. You know, so you've got to get a 100% perfect copy to duplicate, to send to places, because if even on the timeline of your movie on the computer it runs perfectly, but then there's a glitch on it, and then two minutes in, the, the audio goes off, you send that to someone to say, buy our movie, they're going to chuck it in the bin um, the moment it looks unprofessional. And again, we're already, it's lower budget to start with, so anything that makes it look uh, lower budget is, is to the film's detriment. So it, it just it took a long time, but when we finally had that perfect version, uh, Anthem snatched it right up. So there's uh, in the future there's a prize to being the first generation innovator, the uh, uh, the one getting the the gadget or the newest tech as soon as possible. <laughs> right. No, we definitely. Uh, I mean, we'd shoot high def again, uh, definitely with a dedicated high def camera. All right. Uh, so it's been out um, officially since Gen Con, right? Or since Gen Con, since August 14th. Right. So how's the reception of the Gamers 2 been? I mean, you mentioned it's already selling out, but what kind of feedback have you been uh, getting from the, the fans and the critic and uh, any unusual responses? Most of the places I look for responses are Pizo.com, Amazon, and Netflix is where people can rate it. Um, mostly we're getting five and four stars. I've only seen one one-star review. Um, and that was for someone who just didn't like it because the production values were so poor, which is fine. You know, we can't do the Matrix with uh, <laughs> the drop in the bucket of budget we had, or whatever you're looking for. Um, what's been funny is is some of the some of the four star reviews that I would have given this five stars, but I don't. I think it's too niche. I think it's too narrow, and people who aren't gamers won't get it. Which is weird because many of the five star ones are saying I showed this to people who aren't gamers and they loved it. So. It's doing well for the first, I think, two, two, week, two or three weeks on, um, on Netflix. You couldn't get it because the demand was so high. Uh, Paizo was selling them. Like, we sold over 1,200 of them at Gen Con in four days. Uh, yeah, we went through a ton of Sharpies signing. Um, it's, it's been selling really well. The reviews have all been have pretty uniformly been good. You're always going to get, you know, bad ones. The film's got about an 8.1 or 8.2 rating on, on uh, IMDb, which is pretty damn good, yeah. uh, considering there. So, again, it's, it's, it's kind of too early to tell. It's been out for about six weeks. So in that time, we know it's sold out of its initial run, and Anthem's producing more, which means there's a demand for more. So, yay. <laughs> so, um, what are your current projects? What are you working on right now? Oh God! Well, several. Um, Dead Gentleman is looking at, at doing uh, Demon Hunters as a web series, uh, based on the, the reset of the canon that we got to do with the uh, role-playing game. Uh, optioned the next gamer's script, or what might be the next gamer's script, uh, to Epic Level. Is going to produce it with Dead Gentleman. Uh, personally, I'm working on. I've got, I'm, I'm doing some right for hire work uh, on some animated pilots uh, from overseas uh, that are being funded from overseas. I've worked for these folks before. Um, I'm working afternoons at Epic Level Entertainment, uh, helping out around the office there, and have been pitching another project with some friends from uh, the AFI that uh, at, at places just recently pitched at uh, Cartoon Network. Uh, and if that goes forward anywhere, uh, I'll let you know. Um, had another project that you can see some of the video for at falconrockcommand.com. Oh, you're uh, the uh, the zombie survival. Uh, yes. Yes. Alive. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, with uh, Star Trek veterans uh, Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens. I didn't know you're part of that. Um, yeah, I, I co-created co- uh, co- the series. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Falcon Rock Command. Um, Falcon Rock Command. Well, the, the Falcon Rock Command is the uh, is the fictitious continuity of government uh, facility based on Raven Rock in Virginia. Uh, the idea is uh, the series is called Alive, and it would be a zombie TV show. The idea being that, uh, well, coming up with this and uh, pitching it to Epic Level, who who uh, then pitched it to Judy and Gar, uh, and we've been working on it since, was the idea. Of, I mean, I love zombie films, but I love them. What I love the most about them is the whole how does society going to function now? You know, uh, the the original Dawn of the Dead is my favorite of those. Problem is, a lot of the zombie films enter what I call the uh, the dumbass area <laughs> near the end of Act Two, where you've been surviving, everything's been going fine, then someone does something completely dumbass and unprovoked that gives gets everyone killed, and it's always a letdown. I want to see that. How are we going to survive? Can we survive? Continue for years, you know. And that was the genesis of the idea. Uh, I don't want to give any away any more than that. Just so you can see, there are three minute. There are three three-minute videos on falconrockcommand.com, plus blogs of the characters, ongoing storyline there. Um, if you look up Falcon Rock, you can find them on YouTube as well. And that recently, we, we uh, Judy and Gar were leading uh, the charge on that, pitched around, got very far at a certain network. Uh, ultimately, they passed on it, which was uh, devastating. But uh, we're still, project's still alive. Uh, unintentional pun intended. Um, and we're taking it to other places. You know, I think it's a, it's a it's a strong enough project that it will it'll find a home eventually. Yeah, no, I uh, uh, the horror community was I, you know, follow a lot of the horror news, Room Org magazine, that sort of thing, and it got a pretty good response. I was I I dug it. I uh, haven't looked at it in a few months, but I really uh, uh, enjoyed it when I I really dig the uh, the World War Z kind of vibe for post apocalyptic. Zombies. I mean, that's another uh, a favorite of mine. So mm-hmm. awesome! I wish uh, the best of luck on that because uh, I think the uh, uh, TV networks could use a post-apocalyptic, you know, after zombie society. So uh, hopefully, yeah. someone you know, maybe uh, uh, some net. Well, do you think uh, even if it doesn't get picked up as a show, could it be possibly see a movie or a, a web series? Yes. Or- Yes, um, we have. What's, what's, what's amazing about this project is there are already other companies signed on. Uh, there's a financing company. There's another production company uh, in Canada that, that's interested. It was we're very close to, um, to to landing a deal. I mean, it's it's many of the parts that are necessary are already there. But one of the other forms that this could take would be a series of direct-to-DVD movies or maybe a mini-series. Um, and the thing that was that's remarkable about working with Judy and Gar is you know what they bring to any any uh, bit of, of, of storytelling they do. And that is, it's not enough just to tell a story that's already been told before in a, different, in, in, in a new story. Something about the monsters needs to be different. And what they brought into... I mean, all the zombies that you look at are pretty much in movies. It's a period of a few days to a few weeks is the time frame of the movie, right? Right. What happens to zombies over years? And that's what they brought to it, and... Watching these two storytellers work, I'm just sitting back going, oh, that's so cool. I'm totally geeking out here, um, which I did um, <laughs> and continue to do. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers because I don't know how close to breaking an NDA I'm treading. <laughs> so 
just to say, we love the project. It's got legs. It's going to find a home. Great, great. Uh, we'll uh, I'll have to contact you again for another interview about that whenever that does. Oh, sure. Uh, uh, re, you know, break the quarantine, so to speak. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, given your experience in uh, media, what kind of le- overall what lessons? Uh, what are your lessons learned in terms of creating content? You know, creating movies, uh, working with all these uh, different projects. Uh, what sort of advice would you give to other people looking to make a splash in the uh, <laughs> entertainment industry? It's, it's funny you bring that up because I've, it's something that I've recently forgot and had to force myself to remember. And that is, um, you can't be concerned with what other people want to see. You can't be concerned with being, in someone else's eyes, derivative or, or, or not original because you will second-guess yourself into inaction. Um, the reason I got to film school, the reason I think these movies are coming out, is because when I made The Gamers, I never intended it to be anything other than something I was making for myself and a few friends. Right? We weren't worried about demographics. We weren't worried about how will this play on the coasts or in, uh, in the middle of the country. We weren't worried about how it will play to people who aren't in the industry and not in the know. We focused just on making the most entertaining piece of uh, cinema that we could. And I think that's what led to its success. Um, and success is measured relative to cost. So if you have a film that doesn't cost you anything, but gets some attention and some notoriety, that's a success. The movie that costs $100 million to make that only makes 150 is not a success because they've lost probably another $50 million just on, on advertising alone, um, which is something funny to think about. And then one of the main things I took from, from AFI was you can't wait for someone to discover you you can't wait for someone to come to you and say, I want you to do this for me. You have to do it on your own uh, because no one's looking to do that. Uh, success breeds success. Agents, managers, you don't need one to get started. Agents really are used car salesmen. They're not going to pick you up unless they know that they can sell you. So don't hesitate. If you have an idea, go out and make it. I don't care how much it costs. I don't care if it looks crappy or if, you, if you're worried about the production values. An audience will forgive production values if they're having a good time. Every movie that Hollywood puts out is technically perfect as far as sound, picture, uh, quality goes, right? Right. Yet 90% of it's crap. It's the really, and, and yet it's the really entertaining stuff, the viral videos and stuff that are out there now that aren't made with the same craftsman-like skill, but that have a great heart, and they're hilarious, and they're fun and funny. People had fun making them. That comes across, and so they are adored. Don't wait. Make your own stuff. There's nothing like having a physical copy of something in your hand to hand to someone and said, I made that. That speaks a lot louder than, you know, well, I've got a bunch of things I'm thinking about doing or have done, but I've only written. So, to hammer it home again, just do it. Right. Uh, good lesson. Uh, good motto, I guess. Uh, well, lastly, though, before we go, uh, one of the things I always like to ask... Uh, interview guests is a gaming anecdote they have uh that's a regular thing we have on our own show where we you know just something funny unusual uh that's ever happened in the game that you always love to tell you know when uh meeting with other gamers now obviously you know i one of the things i've always wondered about is if any of your own gaming anecdotes have made their way into the uh, screen with uh, either the gamers or gamers 2 
so uh you know give us the dirt what what uh what's the uh, story behind that well oh boy so many to choose from <laughs> um one thing is uh you know you mentioned way back at the beginning of the interview the uh the the river scene where in the gamers one uh you know you're dropping the wizard's body uh off from mm-hmm. the bridge uh, to show because, you know, oh, I'm afraid of water. That's one of the lines that my friends and I still quote uh, from mm-hmm. the first gamers, you know. And uh, so is that in particular a uh, anecdote? Not that one specifically. Just just the idea that, oh, wait, I've forgotten the critical detail about my character's history um, situation. Like, uh, I think the funny, well, boy, I'm trying to think. Um, some of the funniest lines to come out that just don't make sense otherwise were um, a druid was trying to uh, a druid or a ranger was trying to create a distraction by getting his own familiar to pretend to attack him. So the line that came out was, "I attack myself with the wolf," <laughs> <laughs> and, and everyone just kind of paused for a moment and, and said, "What?" what? <laughs> and then everyone busted up. Um, That's pretty good. That was pretty funny. Uh, really, it's it's. I don't I don't recall individual bits so much because so much of it is is like an improv show. It just flows and goes and and then it's gone. But uh, leaves you with a good memory of it. I'm sorry I can't pull one out uh, for you. I'm I'm uh, pretty disappointing. I'm sure. Oh, uh, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> attack. Oh, of course, I'll remember one later. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, of course, I think. <laughs> Uh, I will uh, have to use someone attacking themselves with the wolves in one of my mm-hmm. games in the near future. So, uh, well, oh, I, I remember. Okay, here's one, which was um, I wasn't actually at this game. It was it was related to me secondhand with um, by some gamers. Was uh, friend friends of ours. Was uh, people were exploring a very evil cursed dungeon. They opened up a door and they were being attacked by something. And I don't remember what it was, but it was uh, you opened the door and it was a well shaft going down. And so they scrambled back up to it as this horrible thing was coming up at them. And one of them uh, cast, I think, believe the spell was Creeping Doom, which just summons this never-ending swarm of murderous insects. Basically, if they hit you, they eat you to the bone, kind of like uh, the, the scarabs from the mummy movies. Right. Well, the problem is now they've, they've killed the monster, but they keep coming after them as well. You know, wall of fire doesn't stop it. Wall of wind doesn't stop it. So they, they ultimately just slam the door and lock it shut, and you hear all this horrible scribbling and whatnot of this never-ending wave of, of beetles growing up behind the door. So they said, okay, we're not taking that, that door, and one of them says, hang on, takes out some charcoal and writes, beware of creeping doom on the door, and they just leave the dungeon. The idea being whoever else is walking through, say, the janitor, beware of creeping doom, huh, what's this? Open up and, you know, wave of... Uh, Devouring insects, <laughs> uh, or some poor first-level adventurers trying to make their name in the first dungeon. They exactly. Maybe we'll find some copper pieces. Yeah. Ah! Fortunately, they were only level one. They're easy to replace. So. Easy enough. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, uh, thank you, uh, Matt. It's been a great interview, and we look forward to uh, the Gamers Three or Falcon Rock Command, or, or I'm sorry, Alive, or uh, what other project uh, uh, your your brew will come out next. So, oh, thanks so much. So, all right. Yeah. Uh, have, have a good one. Yeah.